0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we're going to talk to Stephanie Rutherford on the history of our relationship with wolves in Canada. Stephanie Rutherford is an associate professor in the School of Environment at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. She describes her research as inhabiting the intersections among political ecology, animal studies, and biopolitics. Today, we are talking to her about her newest book, Villain, Vermin, Icon, Kin, Wolves and the Making of Canada published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. Stephanie, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
0: What drew you to research and write the history of Canadians' attitudes towards and their perceptions of wolves?
1: Uh, well, it's a bit counterintuitive because I was—I I became interested in the history of wolves in Canada by going to the United States um, when I was finishing, or I was working on my dissertation many years ago. Now, <laughs> I was part of an eco tour that was centered on wolves at Yellowstone National Park, and uh, and all of the people on the eco tour were Americans, and they seemed, uh, you know, fascinated in this way that kind of signaled a, a Canadian exceptionalism that uh, we had wolves in Canada, that, can, that wolves persisted in large numbers in Canada. And I was, I was curious about, you know, what was happening in that moment. Um, and I'd read there's, you know, wonderful environmental histories of, of wolves uh, in the United States. And I was interested in, in thinking along similar lines in the Canadian context. So that's what brought me to, to this question.
0: I absolutely loved the structure of your book. Each of your seven chapters is a single word theme. Fear, disgust, passion, curiosity, devotion, ambivalence, and empathy. These are all words which you carefully define and then apply to the subject matter. How did you even come up with this approach?
1: It didn't start that way. Uh, Initially, when I conceived of this book, I sort of thought it it would be really an uh, examination of a sort of how biopolitical registers have changed through time uh, in our relationship with wolves, right? So first we see them as invaders, then we see them as vermin, then we see them as kind of wilderness ambassadors, and that remains in the book. Um, but as I started my archival research, I, I started to see that there, there was all kinds of emotions embedded in wolves. Um, and I was interested in in charting that shift, like they seemed to me to be these fuzzy containers for all sorts of human emotions, much of which didn't have anything to do with wolves themselves, right It was about something else was at play there and I also began to notice that this this hasn't changed through time, right So whenever I go and speak about wolves at uh, you know at an academic conference or public events. Invariably, at the end, there are people waiting to talk to me, and it's not because I am particularly interesting. It's because they want to share a wolf story with me, <laughs> and and they have really like strong feelings about their wolf stories. Whether they are, you know, farmers who who have had livestock attacked by wolves, or whether they are people who go to the Algonquin Wolf Howl, um, there's always something, some kind of emotional uh, and sensory. Story embedded there, so I was interested. So it seemed to me that not telling that part of the story would have would have left out something pretty significant to the history of wolves in Canada.
0: Well, let's start with uh, the early Canadian settlers' relationship with wolves. Why was fear the dominating emotion?
1: There's been been lots of uh, work that's shown really. In, in crucial ways, the way in which wolves were this threat to economic security. And I think that's absolutely the case, right? So there's this way in which wolves as predators um, fed on the livestock that settlers were were using to imagine their their new place in, in this nation that they were attempting to craft. So, so I think it's partially that. There's an economic um, piece to pay attention to. But I also want to say, or I say in the book, that it's more than that, right? So wolves threatened the kind of psychic certainty of settlers, right? Um, so they were kind of, you know, haunting the edges of the lands that settlers were trying to make their own, the claims that they were making on the land, and they revealed themselves as a kind of wildness out of place. Um, and this sort of threat was, was generated all sorts of, of anxieties. And I think it was, you know, it's in part because wolves are, are heard rather than seen, I think, um, that imparts this sort of terror. And in, in lots of ways, what, you know, in early writings about the wolf or, you know, the things that you find in Rod and Gun magazine, what they were describing was actual terror for being consumed. Like they thought they would be eaten alive. Um and I think that's something deeper than than the economic piece. I think the economic piece matters, but I think there is something sort of more psychologically chilling about uh, the howling of wolves in the wilderness uh, and settlers' place on this land.
0: In your next chapter, you do talk extensively about the economic piece of it, but that chapter is entitled Disgust. And I'd like you to define disgust for us. And why discuss and how disgust led to efforts almost everywhere in Canada to exterminate the wolf?
1: Yeah, so disgust, I mean, I think that what we see is this move, and it's in the title of the book, right, from villain to vermin. Um, and so we see this move from fear, although it remains, you know, certainly people remain afraid of wolves today. So I'm not saying it's something that's disappeared but seeing them more as a pest, like a threat to agricultural futures, um, wildness out of place, but in a way that becomes increasingly manageable and, and certainly um, a threat to agriculture, livestock, all of these sorts of things. So I think the way that, that wolves get talked about as larger portions of their habitat become settled in agriculture changes. Uh, and, and so the way I define disgust is, is, you know, of course, I think we all know, We all have those feelings of being disgusted. We know what it does to our body, right? But I think disgust also has a politics to it in the sense that disgust, um, and William Miller talks about this, the way that disgust stratifies and ranks and orders. And so in this way, um, and this is especially the case I talk a lot about Jack Miner in, in this chapter because Jack Miner is held up as this, you know, uh, hero of conservation in Canada. And certainly he did a lot for conservation. But the one thing he didn't do a lot for was wolves. Um, and in his application of ideas, and he was like absolutely disgusted by wolves and other predators that he called murderers, um, murderers of good game, right? Deer and so on. That, that were noble and wonderful and had their, you know, had this place in the world. And so in his version of disgust, he ranks them, right? They're at the bottom of this hierarchy of, of animals. And so they should be eliminated at, at all costs. So that's what I mean that by disgust. It has this, it certainly has this embodied dimension, right? The wrinkling of the nose, all that sort of thing. You know, the things we feel when we're disgusted by something, but it has a politics too.
0: How did, discussed under Pin Jack Miner's delineation of good and bad. I mean, you you describe it quickly in terms of prey uh, versus uh, animals that are, in fact, uh, uh, those that prey upon the prey. But can you describe that a little bit more in terms of how it led to this very clear delineation?
1: Environmental historian Tina Liu talks about Jack Miner's folk taxonomy and it really does hinge upon this you know delineation of of what a good animal is and what a bad animal is um and so for jack minor good animals are those that embody specific kinds of characteristics you know they they have Um, family units, which make sense to people in terms of the way that they can model back to us what we think families should look like. Um, They don't engage in sort of savagery or vicious attacks, all of these kinds of things. And bad animals, you know, wolves alongside, you know, cougars and others uh, are animals that are the opposite of that, right? And, And he very clearly, I mean, there is a kind of visceral way in which, in in his writings, which he demonstrates uh, disgust and hatred for those sorts of animals, um, across his writings, right there, it's just kind of it, it underpins his very philosophy about w- what conservation should look like. So this
0: brings us to passion, and uh, as you put it, writing the wolf into Canadian literature. I think the most iconic and infamous book. Uh, was Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat. Now, how did this book change the perceptions of Canadians? And why did it cause such a negative reaction among some?
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, Farley Mowat not only changes the ideas that Canadians have about wolves, he changes ideas that people around the world have about wolves, especially as his book is popularized by. By the Disney movie, right? So he, he has this real impact uh, in terms of how we can think about wolves. And I would say, you know, it's central to their recuperation in Canada and beyond. And part of that is because he writes them as individuals, right? You know, there are these carefully crafted and beautiful stories about these wolves that are not, you know, ravenous and you know, slavering at the door and trying to kill all of us as the settler, early settlers might have them. Um, but rather are, you know, in the same way that Jack Miner talks about good animals, Farley Mowat talks about wolves as good animals. So he sort of inverts that question of disgust. And so, you know, Farley Mowat's wolves have these close family bonds. Um, They, you know, are often have their own quirky personalities. Some are humorous, some are maternal, all of these sorts of things, right? So I think he allows a window into wolf life. Um, that's different from, from what we had seen before. He engages in creative nonfiction, right? So, so it is not this necessarily one-to-one account of what happened. And there's lots of things that biologists like Doug Pimlott suggest that he got terribly wrong. There's this famous Saturday Night uh, Magazine, now defunct, of course, as Saturday Night Magazine uh, expose of the, the number of ways in which Farley Mowat inflated the truth. And so I think, you know, he would say it doesn't matter, right, that the story is a good one. Um, and and sometimes there's a quote in the book and I won't uh, it has it has some foul language in it, so I won't quote it directly. But, you know, that the facts can get in the way of a good story. Right. And so so he wants to tell this story that changes hearts and minds. And I think what people disagree with is that some of the parts of that story may not have been true. And in his romanticization of wolves, um, he doesn't see the actual wolf itself.
0: So how did uh, Mowat's efforts and um, also the efforts of his predecessor, Ernest Thompson Seton, fit in with what you describe as the limits of passion?
1: yeah and passion's a funny thing, right? It is not only about like sort of overwhelming love, but it can be also um, you know we can be inflamed by our our desire but also our hate for something, which I think was you know in other parts of the chapter I sort of explore a little bit more fully um, and so I think that that Seaton and Mowat do this exceptional job of individualizing animals, of allowing them of allowing wolves their own subjectivity, right they they invite us into this conversation where, where animals aren't just populations or aren't just good and bad animals, but might be individuals on their own terms uh, with their own personality. So I think this is important, right? Like it, it opens up this possibility to see animals as something other than predator prey and so on. But it seems to me in in both of those cases, um, and this is certainly especially true with Seton, there were limits to their ability um, to conceptualize wolves as individuals. And so for Seton, you know, it was, they were these wonderful creatures, but they were inevitably going to be destroyed by civilization, right? So, so you know, his his passion didn't afford him the possibility to think about what it might mean to make their lives livable uh, in a long-term way, right? He He wasn't inspired to sort of save them, uh, he was inspired to write about them and to document their passing uh and and moitz's a little more complicated right because he was he did want to change their fortunes, but it was again sort of an elegy for their loss, right that time had moved on in such a way that you know isn't this isn't this a horrible thing that these wolves are passing so there was kind of you know in many ways limits to what um to what they were were willing to, to do and think to be able to see wolves on their own terms.
0: Well, let's move then from the novelists and authors to the scientists and all of their work uh, in the post-war period. And I think from what you describe, it certainly changed our perception uh, of wolves. But tell us a little bit about Douglas Pimlott and his important work and the connection between him and his student, John B. Therberge.
1: Yeah. I mean, Douglas Pimlott, uh, who was a professor at the University of Toronto, um, was known as the father of wolf research in Canada. I mean, his, his important, and I would say his impact spans beyond Canadian borders. He's really, you know, has this huge influence um, in terms of the changes that he ushers in, uh, in terms of how we think of wolves as important parts of the ecosystem. So he begins his research. I mean, there was more before this, of course, but in 1958, he embarks upon a research project at Algonquin Provincial Park. Uh, and previous to this, wolves had been killed by, by rangers in the park, um, first by poisoning and then by snaring. Uh, and his project stops that, right? He's, you know, We have to do this research project that catalogs how many wolves are in this park, what do they eat, are they uh, engaging in predation that decreases deer populations? That was really the question. And does the bounty, which had been in effect in Ontario and in other provinces, do anything to, to change that, you know? to change their fortunes. And so he engages in this research project. He leaves it in 1963, but the research project goes on until 1965. um, That was intensely political. And and Thurberge inherits this political um, story in this area because by not killing the wolves, um, people made claims who, who thought that wolves should be eliminated, that they were actually breeding them. That they were, you know, engaging in this project of breeding and they were seeding um, all of northern and and central Ontario with wolves, right? That this was actually their political aim. Um, In any case, so he he does this research and one of the things that he discovers is that, or he finds, perhaps other people have known it before, is that if you howl, if you replicate the howl of a wolf, they might sometimes howl back. Um, And... Uh, and this then becomes the basis for the Algonquin Wolf House, which is kind of famous in in the park now.
0: Just tell us a little bit about the public Wolf House, since you've raised it. Why did it begin, and how did it begin, and what was its evolution after the early 1960s? In other words, how did it develop?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, so it comes out of um, Doug Pimlott's research, right? He he finds out that wolves will howl back and you know the the park staff are kind of like well that's an interesting thing maybe you know in this moment you know it's post it's it's around the time of Farley Mowat there's this burgeoning environmental consciousness maybe people would be interested in in hearing wolves howl but they had no idea of how much interest there would be and so they hold the first um the worst first wolf howl in um in 65 and you know they they're kind of Skeptical, maybe some people will show up and then lots of people show up and people are interested in hearing the howling of wolves. Um, And it's it's continued pretty consistently um, every Thursday in August since then. Right. There's been there are gaps. Right. So there has been a gap since 2013 because the wolves have moved deeper into the park. But it's this sort of magical um, experience where you know, now when there's a wolf howl, there's upwards of two thousand people who show up, uh, and they line the uh, the edges of Highway sixty in silence and wait for for the park ranger or the naturalist to howl and wait to see if a wolf will howl back. Um, and here there's all sorts of of uh, interesting accounts of what that feels like in a sensory way, right? When you hear a wolf howl. Um, your, you know, the the hair on the back of your neck rises, and you get goose flesh. All this, all this sort of thing. But you know, the wolf howl I think is interesting in terms of my analysis because of how quickly our hearing of it has changed through time. Right, like a hundred years ago, none of us would want to have heard a wolf howling on the landscape. But now, we go out into the wilderness to to be able to catch a sort of brief hearing of of their their songs, which. Are most you know some form of communication with us so that's the emergence of the wolf howl
0: now just as i forced you to talk about the public wolf howl you were <laughs> going to describe the impact of some of the science that was going on and talk about the scientists so please uh, please proceed
1: the wolf research that was happening uh, at the time in Ontario, as I mentioned, it certainly, you know, was scientifically quite rigorous, but it also had this political urgency to it. And part of that urgency was around uh, the elimination of the bounty. And And other provinces had eliminated the bounty by this point, because it had been evident for quite some time that the bounty didn't actually work, that wolves will breed up to their losses um, unless you annihilate every single wolf, which is pretty, pretty difficult, um, they will find a way, right? So, so part of what Pimlot's work did uh, was a few things. I mean, first, it suggested that um, wolves were not going to drive deer into extinction, Um, which was was a concern, uh, not just by hunters who were interested in maintaining deer populations, but also um, the provincial government that was keen to, to make sure that deer remained. But it also, and it showed the diversity, their research showed the diversity of foods that wolves eat. So it's not only deer, it's quite varied and it depends, it's seasonally varied. And the last thing they did was demonstrate that the bounty was not an effective policy tool and should be eliminated but all of this was politically quite quite difficult to take right so um so you know part of the reason it is suggested that Pimlot left uh his research for the province and moved into academia is that he wanted to be more forthright uh less apolitical about about his findings um and the same is true of John the Burge, right? They, they write with passion about the things that, that they are seeing, and they obviously care deeply for the wolves that they, they researched. Um, and that passion then translated into their advocacy work.
0: In Chapter 6 on ambivalence, you describe the coy wolf. What is this?
1: <laughs> so the coy wolf is, uh, and, and I will say, um, lots of scientists don't love the term. Um, they prefer eastern coyote. But the bounty, um, although it was not effective in eliminating wolves, um, decreased their numbers enough that it meant that, so normally wolves will not look upon coyotes as as mates, you know, they'll chase them away. Um, but their numbers had thinned so much that they began to look at coyotes as potential mates. And so you have this this hybridization that happens in uh, around 1920, 1919. And the emergence of this new uh, species, which is a hybrid of wolf, coyote, and some, some dog uh, that emerges. And this is often, you know, when people see coyotes um, in urban places, in Toronto, you know, we certainly have many in Peterborough, often what we're seeing is these eastern coyotes, these coy wolves.
0: So why does it seem such an unsettling mixture to us? And by us, I mean Canadians in general, and, uh, and why does it embody the idea of the Anthropocene? And explain what this concept even means.
1: The idea of the Anthropocene is that uh, humans have become so bio- biologically intrusive that we, we are in a new geologic epoch, right? That, that um, we've moved out of, of the Holocene into the age of humans. Um, And so climate change and, you know, ocean acidification and all of, you know, habitat destruction, urbanization are indicators that we have become a geological force. So with that defined, the koi wolf, I suggest, emerges as this kind of animal of the Anthropocene um, because we made it possible, right? Our political practices, our efforts to eliminate wolves opened up this window of evolutionary possibility for a new animal to emerge. Um, our fear around it is sort of interesting. And and part of what I did was a bit of a discourse analysis of, you know, media accounts of this animal. And it is described as sort of the things that people feel worried about with both wolves and coyotes, right? So it's, you know, they're seen as, as smarter uh, than the regular coyote, but, you know, they... They uh, haunt our urban environments. Um, they hunt in packs and live in family units in ways that people feel concerned about. Um, but we also, you know they they are uh, less afraid of us than we think they should be. so it's it's wildness out of place, I think, again, as we saw with with early settlers. but it's in and among our cities now that we sort of find them. And so, you know, for instance, I recount in the book that um, it is very likely that my outdoor cat was eaten by a koi wolf, um, simply by virtue of the fact that he roamed outside, right? And, and these sorts of losses are often considered intolerable in the places that we claim as our own. You know, we don't often like to think of of um, cities as lively in outside of people, right? But they are these lively multi-species assemblages. COVID for sure showed us that when we all went inside for a little while, how lively our cities were. But I think it's it can be quite threatening to realize that predators exist in and among us, in, in your backyard, and so on.
0: In your last chapter on empathy, you describe... How indigenous teachings might offer us a way out of some of our dilemmas with nature, as well as a way into the world of the wolf and nature. Can you tell us a bit more about this?
1: I end with indigenous teachings precisely as, as you suggest, because I think um, what the Anthropocene requires if we if we are willing to accept, that we exist in this moment where humans are are massively intrusive into the biosphere, um, then the, our ways of interrelating with nature and wolves are just one example of this. Have not been about flourishing. Um, and my uh, to my great intellectual benefit uh, at Trent University, we have um, a longstanding um, embrace of and. Uh, a program in indigenous studies that I've been, um, benefit to, you know, I've learned a lot from, and I'm humbled by those experiences. And so, um, you know, indigenous approaches to to wolves and to other creatures don't start from this sort of separation, but rather an acknowledgement, um, that wolves belong to their own nations, that we have to treat with them, engage in treaties with them in ways that, uh, recognize their independence and their, um, it, that it's important for them to flourish. So I think kind of decentering the ways that we've thought about wolves or animals in general is, in fact, our only way forward. And that needs to be indigenous led.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This is a fascinating book, and uh, I hope that a number of our listeners will. Go and get a copy of it and read about uh, the history of our relationship with wolves in Canada. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. My guest today was Stephanie Rutherford, the author of Villain, Vermin, Icon, Kin, Wolves and the Making of Canada, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallton. This interview was recorded on October 25th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and professionally assisted by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the activities of the Champlain Society.